Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A Dane County judge is expected to rule by the end of the month how much information is needed on an absentee ballot for them to be counted, the Associated Press reports. Last year, the League of Women Voters filed a lawsuit against the state legislature after lawmakers ruled that if an absentee ballot is missing a witness address, that ballot cannot be counted. But there is no uniform rule declaring what constitutes a missing address. The League of Women Voters argue that the address needs to be completely missing for the ballot to be tossed. The legislature has not formally declared what constitutes a missing address, but point to guidance from the State Elections Commission that says that an address needs a street number, street name, and municipality. Phone calls to the state's suicide and crisis lifeline have skyrocketed in the month since the number was shortened and simplified, the Wisconsin Public Radio reports. Last July, crisis centers across the country switched to a simplified 988 number, which is available free for anyone with thoughts of suicide, substance abuse, or other mental health emergencies. Between August and December of last year, Wisconsin's 988 hotline saw a 66% jump in call volume as compared to the same time period in 2021. On average, callers to the Wisconsin hotline waited 23 seconds for an answer and spent more than 14 minutes on the phone with a counselor. The State Poet Laureate Commission has announced that Nicholas uh, Gulig is the newest Poet Laureate for the state of Wisconsin. Gulig has won the Wisconsin People and Ideas Poetry Award twice since 2017 and runs the literary journal The Muse at UW-Whitewater. Gulig officially began his two-year term as the State Poet Laureate earlier this month and plans to curate a monthly online column devoted to Wisconsin poetry. The UW system has officially banned the use of the popular social media app TikTok on all system devices. The app has come under scrutiny in recent months for its connection to the Chinese government. Republican lawmakers in Washington, including Wisconsin's own Congressman Mike Gallagher, have called the app, quote, digital fentanyl and say the Chinese government could easily use it to access user data. The UW ban comes after Governor Tony Evers announced earlier this month that he was banning the device on all state devices over security concerns, though the governor's ban did not apply to the UW system. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the UW-Madison has multiple TikTok accounts, including one for the women's volleyball team, but no more, I guess. The City of Madison is looking for a new way to fund capital projects in South Madison. City officials announced today that they are introducing a new Tax Incremental Financing District, or TIF District, for the area around Fish Hatchery Road and John Nolan Drive. A TIF district is a financial tool used by the city to provide funds to construct public infrastructure, promote development opportunities, and expand the future tax base. If approved, the new South Madison TIF would be the 51st within the city. In essence, the district is estimated to provide around $115 million in finance support to the district to help fund affordable housing, small businesses, and community revitalization projects. 
The new district will go before the TIF Joint Review Board next week and is expected to go before the full council later this spring. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Governor Tony Evers gave his yearly State of the State address last night, providing a glimpse into what he plans to focus on in his proposed 2023 budget. Our producer, Nate Weggehaup, was listening. Governor Evers' State of the State address came as Wisconsin sits at a particularly high fiscal point. According to the nonpartisan state agency that provides fiscal analysis to state legislatures, Wisconsin's budget surplus has grown once again to over $7 billion. That's in addition to another $1.7 billion in the state's rainy day fund. And last night, Governor Evers outlined several proposals to use the state's extra cash. The education governor and former high school principal kicked off his address to the legislature last night with, what else, education funding. So I'm proposing a pathway to get experienced educators back into the workforce by making it easier for school districts to hire retired teacher and staff. And we're going to invest $20 million into recruiting, developing, and retaining teachers and student teachers including $10 million for our local homegrown educators to bolster our educator pipeline and ensure it's sustainable for the future. After promising increased funding for public education, Evers then labeled 2023 the year of mental health. He says that his next budget will invest in making sure that every county has enough mental health professionals. We're going to invest in developing robust prevention strategies to reduce suicide, health self-harm and other mental and behavioral health related injuries and that includes state resources to support 988 the new suicide and crisis lifeline which went live in 2022 thanks to our our senator senator tammy baldwin as well as increased support for peer-run and community-based services across the state Evers' proposal to spend around $500 million to expand access to mental health services has already drawn the ire of his legislative opponents. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss tweeted last night that expanded mental health services is, quote, not going to happen. Evers then took on the toxic forever chemicals known as PFAS, which have been linked to a slew of negative health outcomes. Evers says that he wished he didn't have to continue to convince GOP legislators that water contamination from PFAS is one of the most pressing issues facing Wisconsin. I'm proposing to invest more than $100 million to take a three-pronged approach to confronting PFAS across the state. We're going to increase PFAS testing, sampling, and monitoring statewide so that we can find these contaminants and get them out of the water. We're going to make more resources available to on-the-ground partners to respond to PFAS contamination when it happens. And we're going to work to increase awareness about the dangers of PFAS so folks can take steps to keep themselves and their loved ones safe. Evers ended his speech last night by announcing a new plan to increase shared revenue with municipalities across the state. According to the nonpartisan research group, the Wisconsin Policy Forum, local government debt rose over 5% in 2020, reaching the highest level on record. Their 2022 report lists the need to replace aging infrastructure, rising interest rates, and inflation as the main sources. 
Evers announced his plan to help out municipalities last night by sending up to 20% of the state's total sales tax revenue back to communities. Evers also blasted Republicans' plans to change Wisconsin's income tax to create a flat tax, which would reduce tax rates for the top earners in Wisconsin. Spending billions on a flat tax isn't a workforce plan or an economic development plan. We need to bolster the middle class. We need to maintain our economy's momentum. And we need to reduce barriers to work and recruit and retain talent to address our state's workforce challenges. But GOP leaders in the legislature fired back at Evers' ideas for the budget, with Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu calling his proposals irresponsible. We understand that there's inflationary pressures on education and local governments, and we're willing to address those, but we're not just going to, because we have $7 billion, we're not just going to overspend in all areas of government. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says that Republicans intend to toss all of Evers' ideas and start the budget over from scratch. Wisconsin Republicans will not raise your taxes and we won't pass a budget that doesn't have significant tax reform. We will not grow the size of government beyond our ability to pay. Evers will release his proposed 2023 budget in the coming weeks, where it will then head to the Republican-led State Finance Committee, who will add to, revise, and remove from the budget as they see fit. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. UW Marching Band, take it away. We continue our coverage of the primary election for the Alder seat in District 10 with the incumbent Alder, Yannette Figueroa Cole. Figueroa Cole has served on the seat since 2021 and faces two opponents in the February 21st primary. She spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt last week about why she is running for re-election. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 10 on the southwest side of Madison, containing the area around the Beltline on Midvale Boulevard and the Arbor Hills neighborhood. Alder Yannette Figueroa Cole has served that district since 2021 and is running to keep her seat next month. Alder Figueroa Cole joins me now. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you? So I am a resident of the city of Madison since 1991. I came here from Puerto Rico, and I we settled on the Don's Marsh neighborhood area in 1996 when our son was like four months old. So we have been here since then. Over the last few years, I've, I've been active on community services, in, including neighborhood association, the local neighborhood association where I serve as a treasurer and also the president for a while, and also um, have, find, have, have found my passion when it comes to the, in the huge realm of volunteerism. I have found my, my, where my strengths are, and that is working with the unsheltered population. So for many years, I, work, I worked with Friends of State Families to serve the population and also volunteer at the Beacon. And all of that was done kind of prior to, the, to running for Alder. Um, I currently have a full-time job. Uh, I work for a, for a branch of Johnson & Johnson. I'm their system, a system administrator for a local company here in Madison. And I 
I'm serving now as an elder. So there's kind of not much, much time left in between, but, but I'm passionate about those social issues involving housing. And now why are you running for re-election here? I think, I mean, I strongly believe that two years is really not enough for you to finish or to actually get into deep into the issues. We started the, our first term. We were thrown into, into this first term pretty much just, you know, you had to hit the floor running. Um, there was a lot of learning to be done that first week when before the, the first meeting, between the election and the first meeting. We had a lot of training, a lot of information coming our way, but it wasn't really until you, you get on the, on the council floor to, that you really um, understand the magnitude of the processes and the systems that are in place. I feel like I've been very fortunate, I feel very fortunate to have had um, immediately made connections with city staff that are extremely knowledgeable of not only their agencies, but other agencies. So they have moved around and they understand who are the go-to people that you need to connect with to learn about specific issues. So I, I mean, I, I am sort of a, sponge for knowledge so it has been it has really been a learning affair and all that learning then has been applied to every single agenda on the council we i'm i'm i strongly believe that we have made a lot of ground when it comes to housing and the shelter population and the vision zero vision zero programs and the safe street and transit and the cares program all those things that i care about have been have been main main topics that we had discussed this past 21 months uh, but i i i want to continue to build on those things and get us to a place where those programs are even stronger and that we can continue to grow even new and better programs to continue to serve the the madison population i see safety as a matter of a health equity issue so having elevating the voices the voice and the programming of the violence prevention plan is something that i'm really really looking forward to continue to do but two years is really not enough to accomplish so many of those so many of those goals and now looking at the city of madison as a whole what do you think are the most pressing issues facing madison that you would want to address with another term on the council well, I think that's in everyone's mind. It's the housing situation. And it's not, I, I recognize that the, the, the housing prices is not, it's not just here in Madison. It's something that is, is, is across the nation. So it is, it is difficult to get housing. It's expensive to get housing. So to continue to work on projects that contain the components of housing um, affordability, not just for, um, you know, when we talk about affo- affordable housing, I understand that it doesn't mean for low-income low income people, which are the ones that I want to prioritize, but I realize that there's also a need for affordable housing in the city. We want to, we want to create safe, safer communities. Then let's bring back our, our teachers back to the community. Let's bring back our police officers back to live in the community. Right now, all those, those kind of professions, they have to live outside of the city because they can't afford to live here. So I think for everyone running, affordable housing is a is a priority. I mean, it's a, it's one of the goals of the city, and and followed by that again, it's all about basic basic needs and services. So for me personally, that will be the housing situation, a strong transit system that can take us from point A to point B, 
and provide that mental health care services that that systems like the CARES program um, brings to the community. Now, I want to get into a couple specific issues, and you've already touched on housing a little bit, and you mentioned transit there, and now bus rapid transit is set to take into effect. How do you feel about that? I mean, I think this, I think we have put a lot of money into it. I, the federal government has been very generous, and I, I am very supportive of getting that going. I know it has been a conversation that has happened for many, many years, even before I was paying attention to this. So I am actually proud to be part of the council that is actually bringing, finally bringing um, the BRT to the city. I mean, when it comes to transit, it's not just the BRT. We're also talking about having Amtrak, Amtrak study to see if we can, if we can revive that that venue. We're talking about the metro bus redesign to give accessibility to to the bus services to even more people. So, uh, I mean, like I, I, I always say this, and I, I mean it. Transit is what keeps the the heart of the city pumping. I mean, without that, the better we can make that, the better the city the city will fun- will function. So having um, a system that moves you from Eastern Mall to even farther than Western Mall, all the way over there to um, Junction Road, in in a faster way, it is it's essential. It's essential for us to be able to move across the city, across the Eastmans, in a faster way than 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 the regular metro bus that we have today. And now turning an eye to District 10 specifically, what are a few issues facing your district? What have you heard from uh, your constituents? From the from the beginning, the main issue has been the um, street safety, speeding, speeding, speeding. And I, again, not an issue that it belongs to only to District 10. That is a problem that we have in across the city and across the nation. You know, we're coming off a pandemic and people are kind of like, you know, like that time of the year when we are, uh, when when winter ends and spring starts and we all feel like we can just, you know, we're free again to drive normally and we get so many people, the driving is crazy. It feels like the pandemic did that to us, but it's still, you know, like in a, in a maximized way. So, so for me, the, I took it, I took it upon myself to really get myself involved on anything to do with transit. So as you may know, when we first start, the mayor assigns you a number of committees for you to sit on and to be a vote on. I am not in the in any of the transit transit committee, transportation committees, but I go to all of those meetings. And if I can make it because of a conflict, I always go back and listen to the recording because it is that important to me to find solutions that minimizes the risk on the streets and that alleviates difficult situations that we have on that we face on the road today so the city has come up with different plans and programs um two of those is the vision zero program and the safe street program both of those programs are designed to to one to create the infrastructure needed to to have drivers that perhaps are not that are distracted for x y and z reason to help them lower the speed limits when when they're driving on our streets. And the safety program is, is kind of centered on making these streets safe for everyone to enjoy and kind of like deprioritizing vehicles. We're not saying we're not going to have cars anymore and we're going to get rid of that. That's not, that is not a realistic goal. What we are saying is we should not be building streets that are centered 
on cars when we are trying to work in so many other things that are important to have a better environment and and make our lives sustainable. So we want to to make sure that we build roads and we promote and and market the usage of those roads for pedestrians, for people that are um, that have some kind kinds of disabilities, for families, for bikes, for for the buses whatever many different methods of transportation they are. So I also recognize, which is super important to me, that not that there there's two kinds of drivers. There's the drivers that are distracted and then there's those drivers that are they, they had total disregard for, for the safety of other people. So the some of those drivers are criminal behavior. So that's when the enforcement comes in. So I I am a strong supporter of both methods of of both methods, of both actions to be taken. And that's why one of my goals have, have been to ensure that MPD and the transportation department work hand-on-hand hand on these issues. So uh, any time that I am in an MPD meeting, I am talking about Vision Zero, I'm talking about safe streets, I'm talking to them about you need to connect with the engineers, they should be here telling you what about these programs. When I'm talking to the transit department, we need to figure out how to um, get MPD involved and how do we manage um, the, the complaints when they are, when, when we need more enforcement on those roads, how can we collaborate better to serve each other and serve the people that we're trying to that we're bound to to provide the services to, but the number one issue on this count in this area here has been the transit. I've been talking with Alder Yannette Figueroa Cole of District 10, who will be running for re-election in the February primary election. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Alder Figueroa Cole, thank you so much again for talking with me. Thank you, I appreciate it. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Radium can be present in local drinking water supplies all the way from northern Illinois to Green Bay. It's also present in one of Madison's drinking water wells on Madison's west side. What does this mean for residents? How did it get there, and what's the plan to get rid of it? In our newest feature, Water Stories, producer Greg Michaud talks with Kelly Meese, project engineer with the Madison Public Water Utility. Um, first, Kelly, let's can you tell us where well number 19 is located? You bet. It's on Lake Mendota Drive. And it's um, in the east-west direction. It's located between Eagle Heights and Picnic Point. And then it's, um, you know, south of the south shore of Lake Mendota and north of the University Hospital Complex area. And it's actually located within the Lakeshore Nature Preserve. And unlike some water supplies where there might be multiple wells that all feed to one treatment and distribution center, I suspect that here in Madison, that's not the case, that, that this well serves a specific area. Is that correct? 
That's right. Um, this is one of 22 of our active wells. And um, would you like me to just kind of give you the service area? Yes, that would help, yes. Sure. So um, it primarily serves the UW campus and, you know, the UW and VA hospital area. But it also um, supplies Shorewood Hills and really the kind of the entire sort of near west side of Madison, as far south as to like Lake Wingra, um, east to the capital, west as far as like Midville Boulevard. Um, and it's a, one of our workhorse wells. It um, runs um, all year. Some, some of our wells are seasonal. And it pumps between, oh, 500 and 700 million gallons a year. So um, a lot of water coming out of that well. Indeed, that is a lot of water. Uh, and, and does all of the uh, treatment and disinfection occur right at well number 19? Yeah, and that's true for all of our wells. Each well has slightly different treatment. Um, all of them get chlorinated and um, fluoridated, and that happens right at each well. Has the remedy for the radium problem been selected yet? Yeah, it has. And actually, there's three um, contaminants of concern at this well, radium being one of them. Um, the other two are iron and manganese. And with all three of those, we can use one treatment process and remove them all. So um, what we're planning on doing is um, using a pyrolusite filtration system, and that's the same system that we have at three other of our wells. So we're very familiar with those systems, and they work wonderfully. How does this remedy remove radium, as, as well as the iron and manganese, from the water? Right. So what we do is we force the precipitation of the iron and manganese. Both of those are dissolved um, in the water as it comes out of the aquifer. And we do that by chlorinating that water fairly heavily. Um, and that causes those um, minerals to precipitate. And then the pyrolusite is a, is a filtration medium. And we basically filter those right out of the water. And then with the radium, it actually turns out that um, the manganese um, has an affinity for radium. And so the, the radium actually adheres to the manganese in the filtration system and is removed that way. And does the pyrolusite act as a sponge that has to be periodically replaced? Um, it's a very long replacement um, period, so somewhere in the range of 25 years. So it doesn't actually act like a sponge. It more um, adheres to the surface of the pyrolusite. And the way we um, deal with that is that it, we go through a process that's called backwashing, and that happens every one to two days. We actually run the filters backwards for about five minutes each. There's 16 filters in total, so each one in turn gets about five minutes of backwashing, and that forces that precipitate, um, which is the iron and the manganese and the radium, um, out of the filter backwards and into a backwash tank where it can settle and then be um, discharged. And what is the cost for, or just the construction cost for this remedy? Um, it's going to be about a $7 million construction project. Now that includes um, an addition to the existing facility, all the equipment, um, the backwash tank, um, some site work and landscaping as well. And then when the 
uh, remedy is in place, it sounds like from what you said earlier that it's going to provide the additional benefit of removing manganese and iron from the water. Is that correct? That's right. All three of those contaminants will be removed. And what should uh, users do if they turn on the spigot and they notice some discoloration in their water after the remedy is in place? Well, once the remedy is in place, sh- they should not be seeing any discoloration. Um, I mean, these, this treatment system removes those two, those, those contaminants, the iron, and, or the iron and manganese specifically, to almost non-detectable levels. So typically, you know, the water is, is pretty clear coming out of the tap unless there's some kind of disturbance in the distribution system. One of the things I noticed when I was doing my research for this story is that the actual maximum contamination level, the MCL, Mm -hmm. was never really exceeded at this well. It sounded like the running average, if, if if I'm interpreting the information I looked at correctly, but it sounds like the running average never exceeded the MCL. Is that correct? That is correct, um, and that's for, for the radium. Um, we've been averaging about 3.5 to 4 picocuries per liter, um, and the MCL is 5. Um, and we have, you know, this is um, sort of a, one of the more interesting um, MCLs because it's not measured per occurrence. It's actually measured on an annual running average. So we take four quarterly measurements, four times a year, um, and then those are averaged. So the current, um, the current measurement is averaged with the preceding three to get a, a quarterly average, and that's what we report. And so we have had individual measurements exceed the, f- the five picocuries per liter, but never the, um, the MCL. We have gotten um, very close to the SMCL for manganese, and that's a concern. And then in addition to that, um, our water utility board has a policy that says when we reach 80% of a MCL or an SMCL, that we need to start to look into taking corrective action. So that is what really drove this project, is that both for for iron, manganese, and radium, we've become either very close or above that 80% action level. And then, you know, because of, of the fact that we can remove the radium by also removing the iron and manganese, um, you know, that allows us to basically address all three of those contaminants with one treatment system. That's terrific. It is. Kelly, if our listeners want to learn more about this project uh, maybe get a, an update on the status report as to where it's at. Where could they go to get additional information? Yeah, so we have um, a project page on our website. Um, so that would be www.cityofmadison.com forward slash water forward slash projects. And that will take you to our project page. And there's about, oh, five or six projects that are highlighted there, um, with the Well 19 project being one of those. And there's tons of information there. So if people are curious, you know, I would really encourage them to um, visit the page. And they can also sign up to um, you know, get more information as, as it is updated. What other benefits 
will the remedy designed to remove the radium provide for the water? Yeah, so um, once this treatment system in, is in place, the water quality at this well will be among the very highest of all of our wells. Um, and right now, what's going on is because of the lower water quality, we've been self-limiting production of this well um, and let, letting some of the other higher quality wells kind of fill in that gap. But once that water is treated, like I said, it'll be among the highest water quality in the city, and we will be um, bumping that back up to you know, full production. So it's, it, while it's a water quality project, we also think of it as a water supply project, and we really try to maximize the usage of the wells that have the highest water quality. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for your time, and I, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Uh, Sounds good, Greg. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, winter sports enthusiasts might have found today's uh, piddling little snow exasperating, but it was lovely sifting down and coating everything. The lack of wind today allowed for the very fine crystals to stack up on even the smallest twigs. We didn't expect to get terribly much out of this storm to start with as far south of us as it was with the Circulation Center lifting up the Ohio Valley from about northern Mississippi towards uh, western Lake Erie. So we were deep in the cold air up here on the storm's northwestern side, uh, two to three miles deep actually, in fact, in that cooler air with uh, only modest convergence towards the top of that layer and uh, minimal lift within it. So we just managed to get enough cooling and saturation to produce snow. It was almost like getting a little bit of like frozen, the frozen equivalent of drizzle. Uh, and you might uh, have seen the, some thinning of the deck uh, during the afternoon hours, but the snow has kicked in again this evening. And indeed, if a glance at the water vapor image uh, out to our west shows a little bit of a wave in the upper air over Iowa and Minnesota still uh, lined up basically to press eastward over us. So light snow is likely to continue uh, off and on anyway into, uh, well, the overnight hours, perhaps even into tomorrow morning. As I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, we're not in a position currently to see any major storms moving across the area. So if we are going to get enough snow to actually get your skis out and put them on and go somewhere, we're going to have to make do with whatever we're able to squeeze out of the couple or three little systems that will be swinging in here from the northwest over the coming days as the Barra Clinic zone around a growing pool of cold air up in Canada sharpens up and enhances waves that move along its southern periphery. The first of those waves, which will uh, develop out of a burst of jet stream winds uh, that's currently uh, reaching the coast of northern British Columbia, will rotate southeastward through southern Canada tomorrow night and Friday morning, keeping its strongest lift up to our north, but repelling a pretty robust cold front southeastward through here uh, Friday afternoon. That boundary is likely to kick up at least a few hours worth of passing snow showers ahead of it during the midday Friday. Uh, we probably won't see a whole lot of accumulation from that, but we may get a you know, half inch or a little bit more if we're lucky. 
We'll get a first dose of Arctic air then behind that cold front, so we'll be in a much colder environment when system number two swings at us from the west on Saturday. This little storm remains uh, something of a wild card since it'll be developing rapidly ahead of a punch of cold air dropping down the plains to our west Saturday morning. The mid-range models all develop low pressure on the central and southern plains with this and then produce a sort of an inverted trough or warm frontal feature on the lead side of that stretching up into the southern Great Lakes. Exactly where that frontal zone sets up and how long it kind of lingers in place will affect our snow totals here. I'm not expecting any high snowfall rates, but a lingering light snow or moderate snow could put down a few inches, at least conceivably, through the day Saturday and Saturday night. So that's our best chance coming up. After that, we're just going to be cold through much of the ensuing week with surface high pressure and Arctic air dominating, uh, at least out through uh, Wednesday or Thursday. But back to tonight, passing clouds will continue to throw down light snow from time to time with uh, maybe another quarter or half an inch, possibly a little bit more than that coming down by morning. Temperatures will drop to the upper 20s on light northwesterly winds, generally down below 5 miles per hour. Tomorrow, any morning flurries should end and skies may lift slightly through the day with a possible period of uh, partial clearing in the afternoon. Temperatures will hold in the upper 20s on northwesterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Those winds will be drawing in uh, somewhat drier air that should allow the temperatures to descend into the upper teens as we go into the overnight period. Uh, skies should remain cloudy as uh, winds back southwesterly and start to come up through the overnight period. And actually, the increasing southwesterly winds actually might bounce the thermometer back up towards about 20 or so by Friday morning. And Friday will be breezy and warmer, ultimately, with southwesterly winds up at 10 to 20 miles per hour ahead of the incoming Arctic front. And that uh, southerly winds will take temperatures towards 30 degrees or so for, uh, well, one final time before this coming week. Passing snow showers may put down, uh, oh, maybe half an inch or slightly more through the, through the day. Temperatures will drop as we get on towards evening and after, uh, down to the mid-teens by Saturday morning on northwesterly winds up at 10 to 15 miles per hour, uh, coming down again towards about four, uh, to 4 to 8 miles per hour by dawn. And we'll see light snow start up fairly early Saturday, the way it's looking, and continue uh, perhaps for several hours, possibly even into the overnight. Temperatures will uh, basically go nowhere on Saturday, stuck in the mid to upper teens on north to northeasterly winds, coming up to 5 to 10 miles per hour. We'll drop towards the single digits through the overnight, possibly with some clearing, and then we'll be back in the low or mid-teens for high temperatures on Sunday. And that temperature regime will continue through much of the week, with low temperatures probably getting down below zero at some point. Currently down here at the station on Bedford Street, we've got light snow sifting down still, a little bit of mist falling with it, so that'll stick it onto your windshield. Temperature is 32 degrees. The dew point temperature is 28. Winds are out of the north at 7 miles per hour. We're overcast at about 800 feet, and the barometer has been fairly steady over the past couple of hours. We're at 29.73 inches of mercury. We go now to January 1965, when a powerful politician threatened the Daily Cardinal. The city council equated being a woman with having a venereal disease, and two famed badgers passed away. Stu Levitan does the time traveling on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt in 
Madison in the 60s, January 1965. On the 28th, right-wing radio talker Bob Segrist reveals that Daily Cardinal managing editor John Gruber rents a room at 515 West Johnson Street from Gene Dennis Jr., the son of the late head of the Communist Party USA, and that another renter, Michael Eisenscher, is both the son of the former chair of the state Communist Party and a communist himself and Segrist claims to see a disturbing pattern of the Cardinal covering the same stories as the Communist Party's Daily Worker. The next day, Republican State Senator Jerris Leonard writes Regent President Arthur DeBartle Baden that he's, quote, very much disturbed to learn about Gruber's rooming house relationship, quote, with known political leftists, a situation he says, quote, has reached the point of absurdity, clearly appalling. Denouncing what he calls the Cardinal's left-oriented journalism, Leonard calls on the regents to, quote, investigate Mr. Gruber's associations and intensively review the editorial policy of the Cardinal and report to the governor and the legislature. If it is determined that Mr. Gruber's reported association influences the political tone of the Cardinal, Leonard writes, quote, it is clear that his removal must be sought. As assistant majority leader and chair of the powerful State Building Commission, which controls major university construction, Leonard issues a not-so-veiled threat. The situation is, quote, of such a serious nature, he writes, that if the regents don't investigate and report within two weeks, he will call for a special legislative committee to study the matter and take appropriate action. Quote, this situation cannot be allowed to continue for even one more month. The campus waits to see how the regents will respond. In mid-month, the all-male city council ignores city attorney Edwin Conrad's warning against, quote, beginning the year of the Great Society by discriminating against women and adopts an ordinance, 14 to 7, barring the issuance of a bartender's license, quote, to a member of the female sex or to any person afflicted with a contagious or venereal disease. This is not discrimination, Mayor Henry Reynolds, a longtime trucking company president, replies. It's setting qualifications. You're saying a woman isn't qualified to be a licensed bartender. It's a class of work a woman shouldn't be doing. Current ordinance allows a woman to serve as bartenders when there is a licensed operator on the premises, but due to a drafting error, it also permits women to be licensed. Conrad not only urges the council to accept that, but also to amend the 1963 Equal Opportunities Ordinance by adding a prohibition against discrimination on the basis of sex. The council ignores its lawyers on both accounts, precluding that employment and leaving the discrimination unaddressed. It accepts instead legal commentary from Police Chief Wilbur Emery, who requested the legal prohibition. Sponsor Alder Harold Babe Rohr references the council's gender exclusivity. I think we're all men enough on this council to take the position that a woman's place is not behind the bar, the painter's union leader declares. Not necessarily so, says railroad switchman Alder Leo Cooper, 9th Ward. Any woman behind the bar won't cause half as much trouble as some on the other side of it, he says. The 1965 mayoral campaign begins in earnest with four main candidates. County Clerk Otto Feske, Electric Company Executive George Hall, 
former Jefferson City Attorney and local TV personality William P. Dyke, and retired labor leader William Osborne Hart. The nominally nonpartisan race is hardly that. Feske has led courthouse Democrats since his first election in 1952, and his campaign chair is former state party chairman James Doyle. The chair of the Dane County Republican Party is in charge of Hall's nomination papers. Dyke was an aide to former GOP Lieutenant Governor Jack Olson, and Hart is a leader of Wisconsin Socialists. A year into President Johnson's war on poverty, Feske calls the city's current efforts to serve the 4,000 households with incomes under $3,000 random and inadequate. He wants a special committee to survey the families and devise a program for their cultural, educational, and economic development. Hall, who ran outgoing Mayor Henry Reynolds' campaigns, starts his campaign continuing the incumbent's attacks on the Capital Times. Dyke's top priority is a downtown auditorium, preferably the Monona Terrace design by Frank Lloyd Wright at Law Park. Hart calls for the city to buy Madison Gas and Electric. The campaign spirit seems to have caught on. A record 62 candidates file for the 22 council positions, with more districts having primaries, eight, then having unopposed incumbents, five. Madison's first public housing opens, 160 units at four sites around the city. 62 households have already been approved as having incomes appropriate for the federally subsidized housing, with another 159 applications pending, meaning there's already a demand for 61 more units than are available. There are 60 units on Regent Street between Park and West Washington, reserved for those elderly whose homes were raised in 1962 for the Triangle Urban Renewal District. These apartments, the first construction in the project, will be known as the Gay Braxton Apartments, in honor of the late longtime director of Neighborhood House, the Greenbush Area Settlement House, which has also been torn down. The other public housing projects for elderly and low income are at Truex Field, Webb Avenue, and South Madison. In planning and development news, the Allied Development Corporation, developer of the large plat just off Verona Road, south of the Beltline, files for bankruptcy after charges of security fraud filed against its top officers, Neil Woodington and Robert C. Kelly, cause a severe curtailment of its credit. And finally, two Badgers who were on campus at the same time but with quite different interests die within a two-week period late in the month. Harry Stuhldreher, athletic director and football coach in the 30s and 40s, dies of a heart attack at age 62 in Pittsburgh, where he has been an executive with U.S. Steel since 1950. Stuhldreher was the quarterback on the 1924 Notre Dame team that sports writer Grantland Rice immortalized as the Four Horsemen. Lorraine Hansberry, who attended the UW from 1947 to 1950 before moving to New York to become an honored playwright and activist, dies of pancreatic cancer. In 1959, Hansbury became the first black woman to have their play produced on Broadway and the youngest American playwright and fifth woman to win the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Play for A Raisin in the Sun. Lorraine Hansbury was 34 years old. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning 
Badger Memorializing listener-sponsored WORT News Team. I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Greg Michaud and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.